In partnership with 2SER, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of For the State, a weekly program about the media featuring Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Hello and welcome to For the State for the week beginning Monday, June the 8th. From the studios of 2SER and across the Community Radio Network, your weekly discussion on journalism and the media. I'm Rafael Garcia. And on this week's show, how newsworthy is the transition of Kardashian star Caitlyn Jenner? And how much trouble can you get into for insisting on referring to her as a man? Also, Fairfax Media advertises for a journalist and salesperson all in one. Mamma Mia looks to Bangladesh for a sub-editor. And how could the BBC accidentally have killed the Queen on Twitter? Joining us in our panel this week, we have freelance journalist Kate Doeck. Hello, Kate. Good evening. Elias Jashan from The Star Observer. Hello, Elias. Hello, Raphael. And Lucy Watson, freelance writer and online editor at Archer Magazine. Hey, how's it going? Hi, Lucy. Stay with us for the next half hour. And as always, you can send us your comments or questions via Twitter. Our handle is AU. That's all letters, no numbers. AU. Media Watch host Paul Barry is usually the one doing the criticizing. But the tables turned on Paul this time when he tweeted about Caitlyn Jenner, questioning the news value of her recent transition, which we'll get to a little bit later, but most troubling referring to her as a he. What can be the impact of misgendering someone who's transgender? Lucy, we'll start with you on that one. I, you know, obviously it's a huge problem because, you know, misgendering someone can cause huge psychological like problems um, because you're referring to them as something that they're not and something that they've sort of spent, you know, a huge part of their life trying to grapple with and understand and come to terms with being constantly misconceived as something that they aren't. So it's just, you know, it has huge implications for someone's like psychological well-being, I think. Elias? Um... I mean, I, I just agree with what Lisa said. Um, it does certainly have huge uh, psychological implications and it, it sends a wrong message as well to a lot of people who don't understand uh, trans issues and what trans people grapple with when they uh, come to terms with their gender identity. So, um, And it also just shows a lack of empathy and a lack of respect and um, sensitivity. Um, how people, how someone identifies such a personal thing mm. to misgender them is just uh, like throwing it back into their face, and it's, I think it's just um, quite rude to be basic. <laughs> is it is it necessarily transphobic? Big pardon? Is it necessarily transphobic to to misgender someone? Um, I personally think it is, but I think it comes out of ignorance rather than bigotry. I mean, in my opinion, ignorance and bigotry are slightly different. Uh, Anyone can be ignorant. It just takes a matter of time to educate them, to make them um, aware and understand. Where the bigot is someone who acts on that ignorance, and um, they 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 see themselves as correct, and everyone is wrong, basically. Um, so maybe uh, Paul Barry is probably just quite ignorant in that tweet, and um, he he obviously had to deal with the repercussions of that. Um, and I, 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 whether I think he's transphobic, I, I'm not sure. I don't know Paul Barry well enough to say that uh, but just that particular misgendering incident is a is i personally think is a, a transphobic example but um that's just one tweet um how, how, what he is in a big, larger context um i don't know mm. kate your twitter account describes you as happily transgender how how offensive is it to be misgendered 
It's extremely offensive to be misgendered. I've had it happen to me a number of different times by both people within the media and outside of the media, and it can be devastating to like how you view um, who you are, and also like um, professionally as well, because then you start going, well, okay, is the fact that like I'm transgender influencing the way that people like look at me within the community or look at me within the workplace, and that can have quite a negative impact on a person's well-being going forward. So misgendering is definitely a big issue. Now, in regards to Paul Barry, however, um, I have met Paul a, a number of different times in the past. I wouldn't say that, like, he is a transphobe, but, like, I would say that, like, he... He does have a history of being ignorant in regards to these issues going forward. And I've had a couple of encounters with him that have been similar in the past, um, like where he's um, uh, got in and said to me over the phone, um, does Twitter know that Kate Doak is really a man? And that sort of stuff, it can like be... It can hurt, but at the same time, you've also just got to go, well, okay, not everybody knows what it means to be transgender. Not everyone knows about the um, uh, the personal struggles that a lot of trans people go through. I think in many ways we're about... I'd think about we're where the gay community was about 20 years ago in regards to trans issues, I think, at the moment. And as we continue to have people like Caitlyn Jenner and Kate McGregor, for example, coming forward, who I think was recently um, on the cover of your magazine, Elias. Yep, that's right. Yep. Um, like, I think that as we have more people like that coming forward and just saying, like, look, this is who I am. It's just one small part of, um, of who I am, but it's a key part. Um, I think that a lot of people would just go oh, this person is just trying to be themselves and that'll be reflected within the media as well. Lucy, does does Australian media have a long way to go when it comes to reporting on transgender issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like what Kate was saying, where, you know, we're sort of at the stage with transgender rights where we were with gay rights sort of 20, 25 years ago, you know. So I think... Um, we're at this sort of first step now where the media is recognising that transgender people exist and visibilising them as a result and, you know, they're becoming sort of a huge news story because it's this, you know, when Time last year had Laverne Cox on the cover and they labelled it the sort of transgender tipping point, you know, it was like as though it was some kind of amazing thing that transgender people suddenly exist. It's like, they're, you know, they've been around forever but they've been so invisibilised particularly by the media but also by society at a larger scale. Um, so we're kind of at that point now where we're starting to see people be visualised, which is good, but they're still sort of held up and pinpointed for being different and for being something that is not us. So we sort of need to get to that point where we can just have, you know, coverage of transgender stories and issues like it's an everyday thing, which is sort of where we're getting at with sort of gay stories at the moment. I think it also reflects um, uh, a, a bit of like a an issue that the media has been having for a while as well, like how to properly get in and address trans people, how to like um, how to write about us, for example, how to engage with us. And over the past about nine months, both with the um, horrific murder that occurred up there in Brisbane last year, and also more recently, like, um, with the whole situation surrounding Caitlyn Jenner, for example, I've just had so many people, like, from media trying to get in contact with me, saying, like, look, where's a good style guide that I can get in and use? Um, what's the correct pronouns to use? And just simple <laughs> things like that. Um, I think that what we need to do going forward is we need to have 
someone within the industry get in and produce something that is Australia-specific in regards to addressing transgender issues and LGBTI issues as a whole as well, because none of the media outlets here in Australia actually have, even in the workplace side of things, an LGBTI policy at all, or editorial guides for that matter for their staff. I guess you'd, you'd think it's, you know, it can't be that hard, but uh, it, it sounds like um, policies are needed or, or guidelines. Um, BuzzFeed's Rob Stott followed up with the ABC to see if they if they um, if they had any sort of policy along these lines, and um, basically they said that Paul Barry was entitled to express his views on media issues and that he hadn't breached their social media policy. But the ABC also told BuzzFeed that they didn't have any policy on the use of pronouns. So perhaps we can we can draft one. Um, should 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 there be such a policy, and and what would it involve? I think that there definitely needs to be a policy. Like, when you look at the ABC's social media policy as a whole, it is very brief and it is very vague. So they were able to get in and literally say what they said, that, like, look, we didn't have anything that was, like, um, uh, covered under the policy in regards to this. Um, And, like, yeah, like, they were able to say it with ease because there was nothing there. Um, I think that we've got to like go through in in regards to not just like trans related issues but all the sport related ones too with what happened with SBS recently and the media's got to go like right how exactly do we utilize social media how do we do it in a responsible manner but also give like our our staff the leeway in order to be themselves online um and that is a big issue it's not just um the Australian media that's dealing with that it's the global media as a whole um in regards to transgender-specific things, I actually think that they were wrong um, in regards to editorial policies because when you look at um, uh, Section 7.7 of the ABC's um, uh, editorial policies, um, it specifically says that um, you've got to be extremely careful that you don't prejudice against a specific community or a specific person. and. I think that with the sort of language that Paul Barry used in the tweet which caused the the issues to begin with and the follow-on tweets, that that's something that the ABC could have chased up on because even though it is a personal account that he utilises, it is connected to his media watch duties. Mm. It seems the ABC isn't really the only outlet that needs some sort of guidelines on, on reporting on transgender issues and, you know, what what words can or, or cannot be used. Um, Koshi on Sunrise seemed fixated on finding out whether Caitlin had the op. Um, Lucy, what gives the media the right to speculate about someone else's genitalia? They don't have that right. Like, it's just ridiculous. Um, there was that interview last year with Katie Couric and Laverne Cox and Carmen Carrera, and she kept asking them about their operations, and, like, you know, Laverne Cox slammed her down nicely, which is good. Because it is. It's just bizarre that... You know, for some reason, the media or people generally sort of tend to think that they can just treat people as though they're not humans, you know, like by simple etiquette tells me that I can't just go and ask you about your genitals whenever I feel like it. Mm. You know, why does it make it any different for a transgender person? And the same thing with, you know, misgendering or misnaming someone. It's like... For, for Paul Barry as well, for someone who works in the media, who works in fact-checking and all that sort of stuff, when someone says, hey, my name's Caitlin, then you call them Caitlin because that's what they've said. That's the truth now. So it's just like it was just wrong like and offensive. 
and just sort of bizarre for them to do that. Let, let's get to the point of um, how newsworthy um, the news of Caitlyn Jenner having um, done the transition um, really is. I guess for many of us, the Kardashian and the Jenner families, they're, you know, they're ones that you, you could say that we love to hate. We complain endlessly about how the world would be so much better if they were just taken off the screens. Um, Lucy, you're doing a PhD on celebrity news in the, in the queer public sphere. Um, so is, is Caitlyn Jenner's transition simply more celebrity news or is it actually a huge media moment for transgender issues? Well, I think first of all, uh, that like the, those two don't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive. I think that celebrity news definitely has its moments. Um, and, you know, while a lot of it is fluff, sometimes, most of the time, um, often when you look at sort of celebrity news on the whole, it's providing a broader social commentary about the way we should be living our lives and the way that we, you know, behave around other people, the sort of social etiquette that we use, you know, by condemning or condoning certain behaviours in the media that celebrities are doing. That's sort of telling us uh, how we should be living our lives or starting a debate about what is and what isn't acceptable. And so that's sort of like why celebrity news has relevance in the first place, I think. Um, and now that we've got this huge, huge moment, which is a huge media moment um, with Caitlyn Jenner, you know, she was at all over every news outlet this week, as we all know. Um, it's really important because it's putting transgender issues at the forefront of our society. And it takes a person to do that when it's a personal issue. We need to hook these news issues onto people. And so it takes a person to do that. And who better than a ridiculously, stupidly famous celebrity? to sort of start that conversation and, and provide the debate. Mm. Ilios, did um, Caitlyn Jenner receive more coverage than it deserved? Uh, what was the question, sorry? Did Caitlyn Jenner receive more coverage than it actually deserved? Um, no, I think it deserved just the uh, the amount of coverage it did deserve. Um, I mean, I, I'm in the same boat as many people. I wish the Kardashians didn't exist. Um, I, they drive. Me, I love to hate them, um, <laughs> even though the, probably the only good quality about them is that they show a more... It's not just the typical blonde hair, blue-eyed models strutting about West Hollywood. It's actually, you know, brunettes and stuff. That's probably the only good quality about them. Other than that, it doesn't go further than that. <laughs> um, and don't get me started on Kanye West. But anyway, back to the topic. Um, but look, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, I think, has definitely got the coverage uh, she deserved. And um, uh, a part of me wishes it kept on going because, uh, in a sense, Caitlyn Jenner's become separate from the Kardashians now because she's done such a huge thing it's such a personal moment in her life and made it so public and um and I, I i just personally wonder if caitlin jenner is aware of how much responsibility she's possibly inadvertently got herself in or um how much she's how how much of an impact she's had not just on you know not just in terms of media but in terms of just the impact on the millions of trans people around the world who are struggling with their gender identity the visibility of caitlin jenner is just like I reckon over, overtakes Laverne Cox being on the front cover, overtakes when um, Kate McGregor did, did an interview with Australian Story. Um, it, I think it's a pretty big moment and I think um, it, it's definitely set the standard. Um, and the, the other things definitely only, it's going to be challenges, but it's definitely be only up from here. Just briefly and finally on this one, Kate, was was it a big moment? It definitely was a big moment, and it goes beyond the celebrity news side of things as well, because Caitlin, like for well over a generation or more, has also been a sporting idol 
all across the entire world. Um, so, like, yeah, she won a gold medal for the decathlon, like, in um, 1976 at the Montreal Olympics and was basically called the um, uh, the world's greatest athlete at that particular point in time. So when you've got a person who, like, has been probably the... Um, the role model for macho I men for macho males like for well over 20 30 odd years coming out as being transgender like it is a huge moment but it's more than that too because you've also got the fact that like people are getting in having discussions left right and center um in regards to trans people and trans issues in general like even my parents who have been um quite um They've had a rough time with my transition, for example. They looked at what happened with Caitlyn Jenner on, on the news and they basically just went, oh, I can start to realise what you've been going through like with that or at least like um, relate to it to an extent. And like discussions like that are happening worldwide at the moment. So no matter which way you look at it, whether it's celebrity news, sporting news or just somebody having the courage to get in and be themselves, it is fantastic news, I think. I really hope that's what's happening in many other families out there. You from Fourth Estate. I'm Rafael Garcia, speaking with Elias Jashan, Kate Doak, and Lucy Watson. Fairfax Media this week advertised for a combined position for a sales representative and journalist to join their team in Wagga Wagga. You heard it right. One lucky candidate would get to write the news and sell the advertisements. And we don't need to tell you what the problem is with that. Fairfax have since pulled the ad and said that it was a mistake that they were looking for a part-time reporter and a part-time salesperson, but not a full-time staffer to do both. But if it was a mistake, it was a pretty elaborate one, seeking someone who could meet news deadlines as well as achieve sales targets, reporting ethically while maximizing advertising sales opportunities. Ilias, an ad like this strikes at the heart of what we would call the church and state separation. Why is this so important that we keep separating the two, journalism and sales? Simply because it's just uh, the ethics of journalism become murky. Uh, if if we go, if we end up making a journalist start selling ads, um, it's always it's already pushing the boundaries enough when when journalists are required to start writing advertorials or native advertising start of source of editorial content. Um, but having them to go out and sell ads at the, well, at the same time writing news stories just doesn't. I don't know, to me, it does my head in. Um, I don't know how that's even possible. Uh, being a journalist in a regional area is already a multitasking sort of job. It's a sweat job already. It's, uh, I mean, I can probably draw similarities to it to when I was working in suburban newspapers. I had multiple rounds, uh, multiple contacts and multiple stories. And I do, like, you know, on average, 10 stories per, per, for each weekly deadline. And I don't think I would have ever had time to find, to find time to sell ads. So I don't know how it's even physically, legitimately possible to do stories and sell ads at the same time. So that separation just needs to happen because there's, it would be a massive task. Lucy, could we ever see that happen? See, this is uh, kind of interesting for me because I think certainly when you talk about these kinds of things, all those problems come up with things like news journalism. But I think working in um, independent media, uh, I've got uh, my PhD supervisor writes about independent magazines as well and she writes about how... Uh, these magazines generally have a close relationship with their advertisers because 
these are independent magazines that are catering towards a niche audience of a specific interest set that they can find advertisers that are also part of that specific interest set and catering to that same niche group. And as well as that, um, all the independent magazines, you know, kind of have a real sort of uh, taste for good aesthetics. And so they'll only sort of print ads that are aesthetically quite beautiful as well. Mm. And so you sort of establish this kind of close relationship um, as an editor, I suppose, with your advertisers to make sure that their ads are fitting in with your style of the magazine and looking good and providing something more and added value to your magazine. Um, so that's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, that doesn't really impact on the journalism, I don't think, particularly because the journalism in these types of magazines is catering specifically towards that same niche that the advertisers are creating. So the conflict doesn't sort of tend to arise as much. Kate, the ad was actually um, pulled down after Fairfax faced a fair bit of um, online backlash. Could could the ad be testing out the waters on this? I think it probably is, but if we look at the Australian media as a whole at the moment, both um, commercial media and also community media as well, this is actually something that's been going on in some way, shape or form for at least 20, 30-odd years. <coughs> because with... Um, uh, let's say, like with community radio, for example, uh, all around the country you'll have different presenters, different like um, uh, other media people going and talking with di- different advertisers all the time in order to get sponsorships. And, like, yeah, like, um, I think that Fairfax has probably just gone, well, how can we maximise, like, the resources that we've got at hand um, in terms of, like, manpower? But... I think they're also going, well, we've got to improve our bottom line as well. So mm. I think this is testing the waters. I don't think it's a particularly good idea for larger companies such as Fairfax, like for a smaller group such as a community radio station, it'd probably be okay. Mm. But like for a larger organisation that does investigative journalism at the local level and also at the state and federal and national level, it does present its difficulties going forward. So I think that if they're going to explore this any further, they'd have to find a way that like, um, uh, they can separate um, the responsibilities of a journalist from their other duties, like um, uh, as a salesperson going forward. Like, let's say if they did have a salesperson who was also a journalist, They'd have to make it so that particular journalist was not doing any investigative news coverage. They'd have to be getting in doing something else, like sport, for example, Mm. where there isn't as much of a conflict. Staying on the topic of somewhat surprising job ads, uh, Mamma Mia Women's Network is currently hiring for sub-editor positions, um, but... If you're interested, it seems that you would need some experience and be based in India or Bangladesh. Sub-editing being done overseas is not quite new. Um, Fairfax has been doing it for quite a while. So what's so controversial with this move by Mamma Mia, Elias? Um, I think the controversy, Mamma Mia always seems to come across controversy. So there's just another one in a long line of controversies that's encountered in the past few years. Um, and I, th- I think what adds to it is the mystery surrounding um, how much these sub-editors would be paid because it wasn't clearly specified in the job ad, where, and, uh, whereas the average sub-editor in Bangladesh would earn just, just under five grand per year. Uh, so I guess, you know, it's almost like looking at how, you know, working labour issues or abusive... Um, oh, I had a brain fart, I don't know what we're going to say. Abusive working rights of um, international workers and taking advantage of them 
um, and just not really treating them, uh, giving them what they deserve in terms of payment. Or why, why can't we pay them equally? Um, Lucy, uh, Mamma Mia has um, published articles in the past um, criticizing uh, how, um, how low uh, pay, um, you know, workers are paid in Bangladesh. Is, is this just um, a bit hypocritical that they are now uh, hiring for a position in Bangladesh, paying uh, a wage that would be considerably lower than in Australia? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, yeah, if they're criticizing, you know, all these sort of fashion <laughs> industries that are um, underpaying representatives, then, you know, clearly they'd have to make it clear and commit to paying someone a living wage. Um, what's interesting is that obviously the reason they're doing it is to save money, right? Because a living wage in Bangladesh is going to be substantially lower than a living wage in Australia. Mm. Um, to pay someone a living wage, a living Australian wage, and have them working in Bangladesh is A, like, completely not the point of what they're trying to do and b would just sort of be quite phenomenal to be earning what 50 60k in a place where the average yeah. was five so it's just kind of it's it's interesting because i i often wonder you know if they are getting paid a living wage that like that'll be substantially cheaper than it would be to be in australia and and you know you're fostering someone's work and someone's life by providing them with income is that a good thing or is it still problematic because it is just outsourcing to a third world com country purely because it is cheaper there? Like, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> mm. Moving away from Australia um, for a moment and just in the um, few minutes that we have left, um, last week a tweet was posted from a BBC producer's account announcing the Queen had died only to, um, to cor be corrected just a few minutes later. The accidental tweet was posted during a practice run of a royal obituary. Do all news organizations rehearse things like these, um, Kate? Many do, especially when you've got a very prominent um, individual who is getting on like in um, into their years, for example. Um, like uh, with the Queen, a lot of like media organizations worldwide would have um, packages ready to go just in case like something did happen mm -hmm. um, overnight, for example, um, at the drop of a hat. Um, in regards to... Um, whether or not you can prevent things like this. So, like, accidents are always going to happen no matter what. Um, I think, though, that it is a sign that we do need um, more of a presence of sub-editors, for example, on digital media. Um, and that kind of, like, brings in the, um, the Mamiya example again for a second because sub-editors basically give you a local feel for, um, for a story or for um, the people that you're engaging with. It's not just for the typos that they find, for example, or the grammar issues. It's a feel of the, the local community or the national community. And I think that this is a sign that the BBC probably does need to tighten up their sub-editorial um, and wide editorial like um, policies and all of that going forward, but I don't think it's a really hangable offence to have like accidentally put a tweet up like that and then just instantly corrected it. Mm. Um, it's something we need to avoid, but it's not a hanging offence. Elias, just briefly on this one, how damaging can a tweet like this be, really? Um, I've... I mean, it might be damaging to the to the brand of BBC as a whole, but to the royal family, I don't think they would care. Uh, to the particular journalists, who probably would have been reprimanded behind the scenes. Um, but I mean, like, I'm, I'm I'll put my hand up. I've I've made some accidental tweets before, and I've deleted them, and um, I've make a correction and just move on. Um, and yeah, I mean, it may have been just a typo. I mean, 
I, I really don't know. It's just, I, mean, I, I don't know the full story behind how that tweet came about and why on earth were they doing a practice of it? Mm. Why, why didn't they do it on a separate Twitter account that, were, that had no followers? Why do on that particular account? Apparently no one really knows. There's an internal investigation taking place. Um, just briefly, Lucy, um, can it be avoided? Or mistakes will always happen? Well, yeah, mistakes always tend to happen, particularly with how fast news goes these days. You're just going to make more mistakes because there's less time to fact check. Um, and so you just delete it, storm it a teacup, really. <laughs> like, people forget about it in a month. <laughs> That's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Thank you to our guests, Kate Doak. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Ilias Jashan from Star Observer. Thanks, Raphael. And Lucy Watson, freelance writer and online editor at Archer Magazine. Thank you. My name is Rafael Garcia. We'll be back again at the same time next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SCR's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SCR 107.3 and at 2SCR.com. Check out the program description for links to follow 2SCR and Fourth Estate. You can subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events. 